This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. I'd like to thank Stories to Inspire, first and foremost, for this amazing opportunity, and also for all the amazing work that they do for Klal Yisrael. I'd like to take you back into the 1940s in Europe. There was a couple, Abe and Sarah, and they were an amazing couple. Everybody looked at them knew this was the couple. Abe was madly in love with, with Sarah, and Sarah was madly in love. Everything was amazing. Everything was unbelievable. Unfortunately, the news was coming out that the Nazis were getting closer and closer to their town, and they realized they had to do something. So Abe was trying to work on all these, uh, you know, getting the documents to get visas to get out of the, uh, you know, to get out of Europe, and all the work that he put in, he was finally able to procure a visa for Sarah, but unfortunately, he couldn't do anything for himself because of his background, he couldn't, get the, he couldn't get the visa. So he goes over to his wife, Sarah, and he says, my darling, please, you have to go. Go, you have an aunt in California. Go to California. Let me work on the visa, and then I'll, I'll meet with you when I, when I get the visa. And Sarah was like, absolutely not. I am not leaving you. I'm staying wherever you go, I go. And they were going back and forth, back and forth. Sarah was not having it. So didn't want to fight with his wife, so he kept on trying. A day, two days go by, three days go by. Finally, he hears that the Nazis are very close. Any day, they're entering. He doesn't speak to Sarah anymore, and he goes and he buys her a ticket out to go to, uh, to, to Los Angeles to her aunt. And the day comes when she is, she's supposed to board the train to leave the, to leave the town. An hour before the, the boarding time, he starts packing up her bags. And Sarah looks at Abe and says, what are you doing? And he's like, I- I'm packing up uh, your bags. She's like, where are we going? And he's like, you're going to your aunt in, uh, you know, in Los Angeles. I'm still working over here. And Sarah was like, absolutely not. We spoke about this. I'm not going. I'm staying wherever you are. And Abe goes over to Sarah and he goes over to her and says, listen, she says, my darling, my love of my life. If chas v'shalom, something happens to you because you stay with me, I will never be able to live with myself. Please, I am begging you, please go. Please, you go to Los Angeles and I'll make it there in due time. I'm working around the clock trying to get the papers, but I need, I need to know, know that you're safe. Sarah, know, knowing that you know, Abe is right, she starts you know, swelling up in tears, and she doesn't say anything. She stands in the corner. Meanwhile, Abe is packing up the bags, finishes the packing of the bag, and they start uh, you know, going, uh, making the way to the door. And Sarah's still on the bed, and he realizes he, Abe has to do something. So he goes over to their wall. This was in the 1940s. They had one picture of their wedding. He takes the picture off the wall and he goes over to Sarah and he says, listen Sarah, he says, take this, put it when you get to your aunt in, uh, in Los Angeles and once I get there we'll be reunited and we will uh, put this in our new home wherever we, we decide to uh, build our lives. And Sarah came to the realization that Abe is right. So she takes the, this picture and she does something that's the most shocking, most horrific thing that Abe could imagine. She takes the picture and she rips it down straight down the middle. And Abe is like, what are you doing? That's our only copy. We don't have anything else. And Sarah goes over to Abe and says, we're not doing, I'm not taking one picture. Says, this is what we're going to do. Says, I'm going to take the, pic- the picture. She split it right down the middle. One side was her and the other side was him. He says, I'm going to take your picture. You're going to take my picture. And then when we reunite, we'll reattach the pictures and we'll put it up on our wall in our future, in our new home. So they said, fine. And they're about to leave. 
And meanwhile, Sarah was so emotional. She runs over to, to Abe and she gives him the biggest hug that she's ever got, not letting go, going, getting tighter and tighter and tears in her eyes. And she goes over and says, hey, please, I'm begging you. I cannot live without you. Please, please, please make your way out. Please come to me. And Abe, trying to be a man, trying not to have his, you know, tears, you know, swell up and, and drip down his cheeks. He's like, of course, I love you. And I'll do everything and anything that I can to get to you. He goes... He drops off by the train station and she leaves. Abe is working around the clock trying to get the visa, nothing doing. Two days go by, the Germans enter the town and round him up. They throw him into the, uh, he jumps from place to place, he ends up in a, in a labor camp. And unfortunately, as the years go by and he's you know stuck in this labor camp, people sort of become like dead inside, the Muslim men. They become, they, they lose the, the hope of living. They're just walking around as skeletons. No drive to live, no drive to survive anymore. After all that they've seen, after all that they've been through, they've seen, they literally dug graves and watched their own family members being shot and put into the graves, and then they had to bury them. They buried their own family. Some of them buried their own, they, they had to dig their own graves. The horrors and the, the horrific things that they went through, we should never know from. But people lost hope to live. And some people went, whatever they were able to grab on that would give them the drive, the will to survive, they grabbed it. For Abe, it was this picture. This is the picture that brought him his will to survive. Every night, he goes and he looks at the picture and he starts talking to the picture as if she's there. He's like, Sarah, I want to tell you about my day. And he tells him about our, our, the hardships and the good things and the bad things. And he goes the, the entire day. And after that, he's able to fall asleep. He kept this picture with him day in and day out. Every, he could not fall asleep unless he spoke to his wife, Sarah. His bunkmates thought he was going out of his mind. He's sitting over there speaking to, as if she's sitting in front of him. But they realize this is the only way that he could survive. They're not saying anything. The years go by, and the picture gets more faded and more faded till you barely see any resemblance of any, any, any you know, sorrow. barely you could tell her on that she's on that picture. <clears throat> and news comes out that Americans are coming, and they're being liberated, and there's excitement in the air. Meanwhile, Abe is working in the, you know, outside in the field over there. And it was a hot day. And they're talking about what they're going to do when they get liberated. Who are they going to go see first? And what's going to... All these different plans that they had. It was getting hot. They take off their jackets and they put it in a pile. <clears throat> After the day of the work was finished, they start making their way back to the, to the bunks. And about halfway back, Abe suddenly remembers. He's like, oh my gosh, I forgot my jacket there. So the, his roommate, which was standing right behind him, says, okay, we'll get it tomorrow. And he says, no, you don't understand. I said, I need to go back. I have my, my picture. My picture is in my pocket, in, you know, in, the, in my coat. And his roommate goes and says, Abe, if you go right now, if you go out of line, they're going to shoot you and they're going to kill you. They don't, they don't ask questions. Where are you going? You're dead. You're a dead man. Just forget about it. Let's go. And Abe knew that they were right. So they started making their way back to the, to the bunks. They get into the bunks and they get into bed. And Abe is talking to his bunkmates and he's like, guys, I can't. I need to get the picture. And his bunkmates were like, you got to be out of your mind. If you leave now, they're going to kill you. You can't be let out out of your bunk after night. After, uh, you know, after the, 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 the time comes that you have to stay in, you have to stay in. If you go out for any reason, they don't ask questions. They shoot, and they don't ask questions even after that. He says, you have to stay over here. And he's pacing back and forth, and his friends realize that, you know, he's going to go. And they go over to him. His entire bunk goes over to him. He says, listen. He says, we lost our family. We lost our friends. He says, see what we have over here? This group of guys says, we're the only family that we each have, only each other. And one guy goes up and says, I lost so much family. He says, I'm not going to lose you as well. Not for a picture. He says, 
there is that we're getting liberated. We're getting out of here. Just wait a few more days and we're going to get out. Maybe a few more weeks. Just wait and you'll see Sarah in person. You'll see Sarah in person. You'll be able to speak to her. So Abe realized that they're right. And he says, fine. They try to go to sleep. Everybody else falls asleep. Abe cannot fall asleep. He can't fall asleep unless he talks to his love of his life. He can't talk, fall asleep unless he speaks to Sarah. And he's trying, he's trying to speak. He needs a picture in front of him. Two, three in the morning, he says, I can't do it anymore. He gets up and he starts sneaking out. And he says, I'm going to do it right. He's going to go in the shadows, under, up, above, all over that he won't get caught. What should have taken him a half hour took him two hours. It's four in the morning at this point in time. He finds his coat, he grabs it, throws it on, and he's on his way back. And suddenly he notices a bunch of trucks leaving the, you know, the area. And he's like, it's like four in the morning. Why? The Nazis were very meticulous on time. What are they doing rushing out now? He hides in the bushes, waits until the car goes, and he makes his way back. He gets finally back to the, to the bunk, and he sees in the distance the light, and his bunk is on. At this point, it's like 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. And he says, what's, what's the light doing on? It's too early. They didn't wake us up yet. Why are they? Why is that? And then suddenly he gets a shock of his life. He says, maybe they did, sometimes they do a random count check. They go into the bunks and they start counting to make sure everyone's there. And he says, maybe they went to count and I'm not there. My bunkmates are going to be in trouble. Who knows what's going to happen? And he sits over there and he starts waiting for, to see what's going to happen. Meanwhile, there's nothing, not a noise, not a bit. There's no noise whatsoever. He waits a half hour, realizes that nothing's happening. So he starts getting closer and closer to the bunk. He goes into the back of the bunk and he try, there's a small window over there and he peeks in. He climbs up, he peeks in. What he sees, his heart stops beating. He turns white as a ghost and he starts rolling on the floor back and forth. The entire bunk was filled with blood everywhere. It says bodies were everywhere. And he, Abe was over here sitting on the floor. He's going back and forth and he's swinging. He's like, I, I, I killed my bunkmates. I killed my bunkmates. In his mind, the Nazis came. They did a count. They saw that he wasn't there. And they, they asked everybody where the missing person was. No one wanted to give it up. And they ended up killing you know, everybody all because of him. And he was going out of his mind from it. While he's sitting up there and bemoaning his, his ill fate, he notices that the other bunk are also open. And he starts going from bunk to bunk into the windows. And he sees every situation. It's the same story. And then all of a sudden it hit him. He says he heard about this. He says that the Nazis wanted to kill the Jews so badly. He says when they found out that the, the Americans are coming, they tried to kill as many Jews as they can and they just ran out. And he goes and he looks and he sees that's what happened. And he's sitting over there. He's the only man alive in this, in this, in this camp over here. He doesn't know what to do. So <clears throat> he realized they're going to have to dispose of the body. So he did the only thing that he could do. He climbs back into his bunk. And he sits, you know, he's over there. He sees his friends. He, he starts crying. And then he starts apologizing because he takes their blood and he starts smearing it all over his body. And he's trying to make this scene where he's also dead because the Nazis were very meticulous. And when they come to each bunk, they want to make sure they have all the right numbers. They're going to do a cleanup. They're going to do something. So he has to be part of that group. Otherwise, they're going to search for him. So he sits over there. He covers himself in blood. He sits in the pile of bodies and he cries himself to sleep. Suddenly he gets woken up. He doesn't know how much longer after that, where he gets woken up by the sound of Nazis, you know, screaming at each other, barking orders, and he pretends to be, he realizes the situation, he pretends to be dead, which wasn't so hard because he was halfway there already. And he goes, and he's sitting in this pile of bodies, and the Nazis start coming to the bunk, and they start taking out the bodies. And they take one body after another, and then they grab him. And he tries to make himself as limp as possible. And they take him, and he hears him, you know, going back and forth, back and forth, and then he's airborne. And he gets airborne, and then he, the last thing he hears is a big thud, which is his head hit the metal of some sort of truck or something, and then he loses consciousness. He wakes up 
doesn't know how much longer after that, with tremendous amount of pressure on him. And he realizes that he's in a pile of bodies. And at this point, he is bleeding, his head is hurting him, he is under a body, he can't even breathe, and he's like, I'm done. He realizes that th- that's it, he's meeting his maker. And he starts screaming on top of his lungs, I don't care, fine, just shoot me, just shoot me, I want to get off out of it. Meanwhile, he hears there's rumbling, you know, coming out from the outside of the pile, and he's, you know, he feels a hand grab him and yank him out. And he is bleeding out of his head, and he's, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. And the last thing that he remembers is being put on a stretcher, and he thinks, he's like, that's very odd, why would they put me on a stretcher? And then he loses consciousness. He wakes up a few days later, he's in a hospital ward, and there's a nurse that goes over to him and says, you know, you were liberated, you're free. But she goes over and she says, you know, you're terribly injured, you're going to need a few months just to recuperate. And he's ecstatic. He's like, I made it. I made it. He couldn't believe it that he finally made it. A few weeks go by, and it's time for him to, you know, go to the TB, DP camps, the displacement camps, and try to find out any families, any survivors. He goes from place to place. He came up to the unfortunate news that he was the sole survivor of his family, realizing that he had nothing left of there. He had one stop left to go, and that was to Los Angeles to, to be reunited with his wife. He goes, and he travels to Los Angeles, he reaches to his aunt's, his wife's aunt's door, and he knocks on the door. His aunt, his wife's aunt's, open up the door. She stares at him, and then she turns white as a ghost. And Abe goes over to you know his wife's aunt and says, uh, you know, is, is Sarah here? And she she gets white and she starts shaking. She's like, what's going on? What happened? And the aunt goes and says, we didn't know that you're alive. He's like, yeah, I'm alive. You know, Bar Hashem, I made it. But what what's the big you know like where where is Sarah? And the aunt said, you know, we, we made inquiries and we tried to find out. We found out your entire camp was, was killed. And you were amongst one of those that were, you know, killed. You're part of that, that, that whole massacre. And he's like, yeah, but I hear now. I, I made it. He's like, Where, where's Zara? She's like, you don't understand. He says, so you know how bad Zara took this? This destroyed her. She went into depression. She couldn't get out of bed. She, couldn't, she was in a severe state of depression. We had to admit her to a hospital. So Abe says, what are we waiting for? Let's go. And, you know, the aunt is like, okay, okay fine. And they, she starts running out. They go, they run out, to the, go to the hospital. As they're running out to the hospital, there's a little stand of flowers. And Abe says, one, one second. He says, I want to buy flowers. And the aunt's like, are you kidding me? Flowers, who cares? Your, your wife is, is, is sick and she wants to see you. She hasn't seen you in so, so knows how long. Just go. And Abe goes and says, what do you think? The doctor's going to let, the shock alone of her seeing me is going to, it could kill her. He says, we have to ease it slowly. Let me get flowers. He takes the flowers and they get to the hospital ward. They get to her to her room. And Abe said, I don't want to see her first. I want you to give her these flowers. And you don't have to say anything. He takes out the picture of her, you know, of, of Sarah, of Sarah, and he puts it on the flowers. And the second that the aunt sees the picture, she starts smiling. She says, you know, you two were really meant for each other. She says, you know, Sarah didn't stop looking at that picture. She hugged that picture. She talked that picture. You really, really were meant for each other. And he takes a picture, pins it into the flowers, and gives it to the ant. Says, "Please, just bring the flowers to her." He brings the flowers. The ant goes into the room, and she goes, "Sorry, you have a visitor." She's not. She's looking straight into into the ceiling. She's not blinking, not doing anything. He says, "Sorry, someone very special came to see you. Not interested." He says, "Look, you have these flowers that you got from someone very special." And out of the corner of her eye, Sarah sees that in the flowers is a little picture. She jumps out of bed. Like, with energy that they haven't seen in, in weeks. 
She takes the flowers. She throws the flowers against the wall. She grabs a picture. And she says, where did you get this? And at that point in time, Abe walks into the room. And Sarah looks at this picture and looks at Abe. And suddenly, their eyes, both their eyes instantly start swelling up with tears. And Abe goes over to Sarah. And he starts saying, Sarah, Sarah. And Sarah is going back over to Abe. She's like, Abe, Abe. For a minute straight, they could only say their names. They started swelling up with tears and they couldn't even take out anything else other than saying each other's names. Abe and Sarah ended up living in Los Angeles well into their 90s. And if you go into their room in their house, in their living room, there's one side of the room filled with pictures of grandkids and children. And the other side of the room is completely bare. And on that wall, there's a small little picture. On one side is Abe. Another side is a very, very blurred out picture of Sarah. Of Sarah. You know, we come to think about this story. This is a story that, how did Abe survive? He survived because he had a desire, he had a will, he had someone to talk to, he had someone to fight for, he had someone that he knew was there for him. He had, knew, he had a, re- a reason to survive. There's so many times in our life where we feel like we're done, like, like we can't go on anymore. So we also have that someone that we could always talk to, that we could always rely on, that will always be for us. And that's our Father in Heaven. Every night you have a hard day, talk to your Father in Heaven. There's no picture. You could just speak. It says that could give us that will to survive, that could give us the desire to go on and, and pursue another day, accomplish so much more. Abe survived because he knew he had to fight for Sarah. It says we too, we could go and we could survive. Because we know that we could go and we have Hashem in our back corner. We have Hashem that we could speak to every single night. And you know what? It's not the worst thing if every single night you start talking to Hashem, telling Hashem about your day. Telling Hashem what happened, what's good, what's bad, and thanking Hashem and asking Hashem and all these things that we have. There's a little spark inside each and every single one of us that has that strong desire. Let us utilize that, capture that, and drive that desire to push ourselves forward to accomplish so much more. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.